This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, May 22, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we talk with Randy McCallion, who's running for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. But first, here's a question for you. Should we consider corporations as people? Should they have the same rights as people? Should they be able to put their massive dollars into political campaigns to support a candidate or an issue? Well, the Supreme Court apparently thinks so, even though citizens whom they're supposed to serve don't. Greg Coleridge, the national co-director of Move to Amend, asks you to join the organization and help pass a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. You can join Move to Amend and help create a movement toward a true democracy that serves all the people. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So today we're talking with Randy McCallion, who is running for a U.S. House of Representatives seat representing the 8th District of Missouri. She's running as a Democrat, and we can confidently say that she'll be on the ballot this November as there are no Democratic contenders for this seat in the primary. Randy graduated from Drake University in Iowa with a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology with a minor in biology. In college, she discovered that she liked working with people in supporting roles. She worked as an in-home educator for children and teens with developmental and behavioral challenges, and then with parents and children in early Head Start. Her passion for supporting families through pregnancy and postpartum led to becoming a certified birth doula and an internationally board-certified lactation consultant. She returned to school and earned a master's degree in public health from the University of South Florida, where she also worked in a state perinatal quality collaborative to improve hospital care for infants, and later as the director of a multi-state maternal and child health program for farm-working families. Randy and her husband have two children of their own. Before moving to Missouri, they lived in Colorado Springs, where Randy ran for the Colorado State Senate District No. 10. Though she lost that race, she still managed to get about 38% of the vote, which ain't too bad considering that she ran in a very strong Republican district. She and her family moved to Edgar Springs, Missouri, where they devote their time to community and family. So, Randy, I hope I did you justice with that introduction, and thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. You really did do me justice. That was a wonderful introduction. Oh, good. Um, In addition to prioritizing community and family here in our new home in Missouri, we uh, are also working on building a farm, um, but a little bit of a different kind of farm, tree farm. We want nuts and fruits and berries, uh, things that produce every year for us. Okay. Well, I'll come down and visit someday. That that sounds like a great place to go. (laughs) That'd be great. Yeah. So um, now you're not a newcomer to politics. As I mentioned before, you ran for the uh, state Senate uh, District Number 10 in Colorado. But you are somewhat re- you are somewhat new to Missouri. And even though you have an impressive resume, this battle that you're entering right now is going to be an uphill battle for any Democrat who dares to storm the Republican castle in the 8th District. 
So, and the 8th district is, is fairly rural, by the way. So what values are you going to lead with? And uh, then later on, we're going to try to ask you the things like, you know, what's your, your, your unique advantage over a well-protected Republican sitting in the high tower of the castle? Yeah, great questions. You know, first, I want to start out by saying when I ran for my state Senate seat in Colorado, as you mentioned earlier, it was also a very major uphill battle in that area. And I really learned one of the reasons that I ran, even when I knew it was going to be such an uphill battle is that there are so many more reasons to run for office than just the winning part. If you don't run, if someone isn't on the ballot, then you miss out on the chance to have that platform for the issues that are important to you, mm -hmm. for the things that you as an individual know and have experienced and can bring those stories, those experiences and that knowledge to the table. So I think it's really important for everyone to hear that you don't have to believe you can win it mm -hmm. in order to just run for it because you do get a platform when you run for an elected seat. And it's important to make sure our voices are heard where that platform is. Sure. I mean, it makes your opponent uh, answer the questions that you really want them to answer rather than just kind of glossing over them and not holding any town halls or anything like that, huh? That's true, too. We have to be holding our elected officials accountable. And if no one's running against them, then they have the only platform seat. There's no one else there to bring a voice to the table. Mm -hmm. okay. So you asked about my values. And I was raised in an Army family. Uh, we moved around the country a lot, although Colorado was home for much of my childhood. I was raised to serve my community because when you serve, when you give to people, you get back. And when you do that, you build reciprocal relationships that strengthen um, strengthen us, strengthen our families, strengthen our communities and our neighborhoods, and ultimately our states and our country. Mm -hmm. I was also raised to lead with integrity and honesty. And I try very hard in my campaigns to be very authentic and to share the experience, both good and bad, because I think it's really important that we aren't always just showing what's going well, that we show what isn't going well too. Mm -hmm. For example, I was just trolled pretty hard on Twitter for the last few days and I uh, don't mind antagonist trolls per se and they tend to just drive up my Twitter, you know, following mm -hmm. and recognition. Sure. But this troll went too far when he started screenshotting pictures of my family off the internet, screenshotting my LinkedIn pages, and then started sharing links to my home address. Oh, um, and so I yeah. shared that with people so that they are aware of what happens and not just seeing the good kind of positive things are going well as you run a campaign. And so that's my honesty um, and also integrity sort of part there that I that I'm showing. But my values um, really stem from two places. One being raised in a very big supportive family. I have never felt alone in my life because I always had someone I could lean on, rely on, talk to, or fall back on. Mm -hmm. And I know that many people don't have that. And so one thing I value is support, strong families, being able to 
have a family that you define because not everyone has the ability um, to have a big family like mine with lots of people in it that are there to fall back on. And that's what a society is for, what friendships are for, what building community and neighborhoods are for. Mm -hmm. And so I very much value having strong connections around you that you consider a family. And I support that very much. Um, Mm -hmm. Another value for me is stems from my background in public health. Mm -hmm. I have focused my education and my professional service to families in maternal and child health and in community and family health. And kind of for the same reason as growing up in a big family and seeing how important that support was, I saw that intervening in life or not even intervening per se, but making sure that we are very supported in early Um, childhood, you know, that maternal and child health focus really sets us up to be strong for our whole lives, to be capable of caring for ourselves, caring for others, being active citizens, and giving back to our community what we have gotten. And so public health is a huge value of mine because prevention is something that we don't focus on enough in this country. Mm -hmm. And when I was in school, less than half a percent of our budget in this country went towards prevention and public health. Mm-hmm. Well, we all know the old saying that, um, you know, when you can prevent something, you save a lot of money, right? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Sure. And I really saw that we were not doing a good enough job, especially in maternal and child health first, but then I noticed it in many other areas around us in life, that we really were focusing more on the band-aids when there was a problem and not on preventing the problem in the first place. So those are broad values under which things like housing, making sure that we have affordable quality housing, that we're protecting renters' rights, we're protecting homeowners' rights, we're helping people who cannot keep up with the amount of work that a home entails. At times in areas like mine, for example, rural America, rural Missouri, where there aren't a lot of resources, it gets even harder to keep up with home care. Healthcare access, obviously very important to me, making sure that it's affordable, making sure that it's accessible. But I'm even gonna challenge us one step further here with my background in public health, because I know that our healthcare system itself isn't actually working very well. We have a lot of errors in our healthcare system. We have a lot of places and um, care spots where the care is not very evidence-based and it's just sort of this is how we've always done it versus this is how it should be done. Um, And we do a little bit too much of conveyor belt healthcare where everyone gets treated very much the same instead of more individual care that we need. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. You talk about, uh, you know, are are you in support of something like single payer health care then to follow up on that? Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Single payer health care is a really important step to drive down the costs of our health care. A huge amount of what we pay is going towards administrative costs for private health insurance and other things like that. So single payer is really important. We need to get that middle um, middle man, quote unquote, right out of (coughs) out of the equation. Yeah. 
Well, the now the eighth district has has lost a number of rural hospitals over the past ten years, and just going over the, the last five years, or well, a little bit less than ten years actually, um, like Mineral Area Health uh, or Mineral Area Regional Medical Center in Farmington uh, in 2016, also in 2016 was Southeast Health Center of Reynolds County. In 2018, there were two more that shut down. There was Southeast Health Center of Ripley County uh, and also Twin Rivers Regional Medical Center in Kennett. And in 2019, it was Black River Medical Center in Poplar Bluff. I mean, these things are just popping offline here. So what uh, what are the reasons you think that these facilities are, are closing and what risk does that pose for the local community? Yeah, I'm really glad you pointed that out. That's something that I hear from the constituents, voters, and residents of my district is how much we're losing our access to health care. Mm-hmm. A part of that, Medicare for All was something um, that was funding rural hospital, rural access. And my opponent and many members of the GOP have been very adamant about defunding those programs, about taking away money from providing healthcare access in rural places. Because a hospital out here isn't going to make big profits. You're Mm -hmm. not serving a massive group of people like in the city. And you're also not going to get that huge diversity of problems and concerns that people come in, meaning that you're not going to be able to charge as much of a health insurance company Um, Because people are going to be coming in with, you know, generally smaller level issues than you might see in a city, just in the sense that there's less people out here, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to fund healthcare at a level so that everyone has access to it. It shouldn't be about profit. You know, I've heard a really upsetting story from a resident out here who said that their elderly parents' plan for the end of their life care was to just take their own life because they don't have the options out here to make sure that they maintain um, good health as they age. They really just have the old wild west kind of idea of you live for as long as you live. And when you can't take it anymore, you take your life. And that was really upsetting to hear because we live in an advanced society an industrialized society we should be providing access to healthcare to everyone if we're going to call ourselves a society. Yeah. One thing I, I learned from, I, I was talking to uh, a, a guy by the name of Dr. Oscar Lovelace on, on a different podcast, and he's a, a rural doctor in Prosperity, South Carolina. And he also talked about this problem where the larger medical uh, uh, corporations, the big hospital corporations will, will, take over these regional hospitals. And obviously they're not profitable. And one of the things that these regional hospitals try to do as they become part of this bigger medical hospital is, is charge these outrageous facility fees. And you can get like charged $10,000 just for a simple medical procedure, like maybe um, draining a, an inner ear infection or something like that. And, um, you know, people in the rural areas don't necessarily have health care. And uh, on the other end, if you're cutting off uh, medical or, or Medicare for all type of uh, operation there, I mean, these hospitals just get squeezed out, right? There's, they, they get closed down by the big hospitals that, that buy them out. So these things just pop offline. And you get a lot of politicians, and you mentioned your, your opponent, your Republican opponent there, 
they seem to be cheering this process on rather than, you know, getting in there and trying to interfere with that process a little bit anyways and say, you know, we shouldn't have, you know, big hospitals taking over our regional uh, community hospitals. But I, I'm not sure how to stop that process. You know, this is a democracy. This is capitalism. So I'm not sure, you know, what a politician could do to, to stop that process. Uh, but what are your ideas in that area? Yeah, that's a really good point, too. And I think it brings us back to do we want healthcare to be something that's run for profit, as in a business model that where you get the most profits is where you should be located? Mm -hmm. Or do we want it to be more like our water systems? You know, some of our small towns, I, I live off of a well. Um, so this is a little different in that case. But we decided long ago that we wanted to build a society in which we all had access to certain things like water, like electricity. And instead of making those things be strictly for profit and for capitalism purposes, you know, only allowing them to exist where there's going to be profits, we decided that we wanted everyone to have access to electricity, which mm -hmm. still doesn't happen around the world, right? right. And so I think healthcare is one of those things, especially that Bernie Sanders brought up um, a few election cycles ago for us, where we really started thinking as a population, wow, it's kind of wrong that the people with the most money get the most health care or the cities get, you know, five or six hospitals and they have choices. Mm -hmm. But out here where there's less money, where there's less people to even use the service, that yeah. means that we don't get access to it. And I think that's wrong. And I think that we all actually want a society in which people have the ability to receive care when they need it, right? So if yeah. you have early signs of cancer, you're going to put it off longer out here yeah. where there's no access to a doctor than someone in the city might. And in the end, that means this person with precancerous lesions, let's say, is going to suffer more and pay more of their family's money for the care that they need in the end versus if they would have had some of that preventative care, if they would have had access to a doctor and they could find those lesions when they weren't, you know, cancerous and spreading through the body, that would have cost everyone in the family, the healthcare system itself, all of us will pay less. Yeah. And I don't mean that we're all paying for each other's health care, but when it comes down to it, if someone's suddenly having a massive heart attack because of the cancer in their body, we are all paying for that when they run to the emergency room. Yeah. Versus if we really stretched our health care out to be for society, then um, we would see people being able to receive care before it was catastrophic and costing insane amounts of money on the system yeah well it, and you know that makes me think too just real quickly about mm -hmm. lots of people out here don't have a lot of access to preventative care like that for yeah. example i know of a few people in some counties south of me like shannon county who have shared with me that they don't even have a pediatrician in the area yeah. so when it comes down to the health of our children these kids don't even have access to preventative pediatric care to make sure that they're developing well um, and that's wrong because then we're not helping them reach their full potential and that's going to cause them to need more support from society in the end. Yeah, my wife used to work at a hospital here locally in the St. Louis area and uh, she would see a lot of people driving uh, 100, maybe 150 miles in from the rural areas for for these types of issues. And I can't imagine that if you're going to do, you know, if you're going to have preventative care, 
that means seeing a doctor on a regular basis. Well, you know, if you live 150 miles away from the big city and you have to make an appointment, I mean, it's it's just um, it, I can see that becoming a kind of a lost cause in a sense. The the fact right. that you don't and have think about right. Mm-hmm. Sorry, think about right now with all those high gas prices, too. You're less likely to make that drive now that it costs you so much more to fill up your gas tank. Yeah, that's true. Many people out here are on a fixed income. And, uh, you know, those sudden changes to what we're paying for gas, for example, um, really devastate people out here and make life a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to mention, too, that 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 farming is dangerous. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there are a lot of injuries that occur that, you know, people in the city don't hear about, but, you know, you're dealing with a combine harvester or something like that. I've never, I've never been that close to one that to really see how they work, but I can imagine the injuries you can get from something like that can be quite devastating. And when you need medical attention, you need it right away. That's right. And it ends up that a lot of people around here have to start using urgent care or emergency centers where they do exist, which, again, is more expensive than if you had, you know, obviously not for losing an arm, but if you had preventative Mm -hmm. care for other things. Um, I will say, too, something I've learned while living out here, the amount of ticks that we come across and that my family has on us on a daily basis, it really makes me think about how important that preventative visit Mm. type care is. Because we're going to see an increase in tick-borne and mosquito-borne diseases. And many people, I believe, out here without access to, to you know, preventative quality healthcare professionals are going to see more devastating Lyme disease. And there's this new one. I don't even know if they've named it yet. Um, but people are having severe allergic reactions to red meat because oh. of something that the ticks are carrying. Wow. wow. Right? That's, and so that's... this is going to spread... And, you know, for us in a family, in our family, we watch out for signs of Lyme disease. But, you know, some of that's just nausea and not feeling well for a little while and being extra tired. Most people around here aren't going to make that 150 mile trek yeah, <laughs> when yeah. you just feel extra tired and not well, you know? Yeah. Well, you, you um, to switch subjects here a little bit, because um, you talked about the uh, the price of fuel and, and one of your values you talked about in, on your website there was energy. And um, you talk about balancing the cost of energy or uh, with conservation, and um, that sounds great. I mean, you know, but the problem is that, as you pointed out, rural America depends heavily on petroleum, and you know, a lot of times the Democratic Party, you know, at least the the accusations they get from the Republicans are that the Democrats think, oh, just buy an electric car, and you know, problem solved. Well, electric cars work really nice if you're in the city or if you're just tooling around town, going to the market and back. But on the farm, I mean, the internal combustion engine still rules. So, um, how do we how do we balance this cost of energy with conservation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think to step back to my value real quick and to point out how important it is that number one, we diversify where we get our energy from. Mm-hmm. Growing up at the time, you know, recently as I did. I really felt from a young age that we were far too reliant on oil, and I recognized that it's a finite resource. There's not an unlimited amount of oil for us to use forever and ever and ever. So I knew even from a young age, we're going to have to pivot from using oil as much as we do because 
we really don't want to run out of it before mm -hmm. we've made our pivot, right? Right. So diversifying our energy not only helps with that, but it helps us be more self-sustaining and self-sufficient as a country. I feel right now that we're using energy sources from other places around the world too much and that makes us reliant on those places and it really impacts us when other places are struggling so you know the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine for example is impacting all of us and if we had been more self-sufficient with our own energy here in the United States we would not have been as impacted mm -hmm. so not only is it self-sufficiency and you know security for our country and our people but it's also making sure that we have diverse sources to pull from so that if something does happen with oil or maybe we, you know, have a pipeline burst and we lose a lot of oil and prices are going to go up a little. Well, if we have a lot of other energy sources to pull from, then we won't feel those effects as much. Mm -hmm. And you asked what we can do out here in rural Missouri for that. Well, we have a lot of space and resources that can be used to produce energy. And if we invest some money as a society, as a government, into building those resources out here, then that makes jobs for us in rural Missouri. There's a lot of wind out here. We've been getting storms all the time lately. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of water out here that we could be doing more with water energy, wind energy, solar energy. I drove past a very small solar field on my way to Cape Girardeau the other day mm -hmm. and was really happy to see that. We could be doing much more of that here in rural Missouri to make sure that we are diversifying where we get our energy from. Yeah, And you know... To bring it back a little bit further, one of my values is that people control their government and not corporations and oligarchs. And at this time, I have heard, you know, because I've run two campaigns now, this is my second, and I continue to hear from people all over the political spectrum, no matter if you are Republican, Libertarian, Democrat, Independent, um, Green Party, Everyone agrees that there is too much corporate power and money greed mm -hmm. in our government right now and that too many people making the decisions are beholden to those big corporations and not to the people. And so I think if we could get control back over our government and not having, you know, those wealthy corporations padding their pockets for their greedy profits, then we would see more inventions come out. For example, we don't have to run cars on gasoline. Mm -hmm. There are other ways to do this, but we're not going to see those ideas spread and take hold among the people when the government is answering to big oil and um, natural gas, for example. Yeah, it's um, something that uh, we run an advertisement on here on, on Democracy on the Move. We talk about this organization called Move to Amend. I'm not sure if you're aware of who they are. Move to, no. to org. Uh, yeah, they've been organized since I believe it was 2009. In fact, we had one of their, uh, um, we've had their founder and one of their co-founders on, on, on the previous podcast. But their whole thing is to get rid of corporate influence on government, and you know they cite one of the one of the most recent um, significant events was this uh, Citizens United. Uh, I think it was in 2010, where mm -hmm. they equated corporate uh, corporations with people insofar as the First Amendment is concerned, 
And this just opened up the floodgates to allow, you know, political action committees just to uh, virtually unlimited amount of money they can throw into politics. And this does influence people and it influences the politicians that are out there. And um, I know that uh, your opponent, uh, I look up his record in uh, opensecrets.org and see where, you know, where he's getting most Mm -hmm. of his money from. And um, uh, one of the things I find out is, uh, let me look this up here. I just had it actually on a, on a diagram here. Um, No, it's not in front of me anyways, but a lot of it's coming from oil and gas. A lot of it's coming from pharmaceuticals, hospitals, insurance companies, and so on. They have that influence on people, but um, how, what is your right. approach to solving that? I mean, now that you open up that can of worms, what is, what what can you do about that? Well, in my position now, um, at, with the platform that I have, but no voting power per se, other than my vote, right, as a citizen, but um, is bringing attention and awareness to it and showing that the Democratic Party, many people that aren't a part of the establishment, because yes, we have an establishment Democratic Party, just like the Republicans have their very wealthy group that mostly controls the messaging too. Mm -hmm. And so I think holding my party accountable and holding those who are trying to keep that messaging going, um, keeping that funding going, making sure that we're pointing out that most Democrats don't agree with that, most independents or Republicans don't either, and that we want to see it change. So drawing that awareness and attention. I love that you mentioned open um, secret. Open secrets, yeah. Yes, open secrets, making sure that people know that they can get in there and see where politicians are getting their money from and their donations from. Mm -hmm. I think it's important. One of the reasons why I've run for office the first time and then again the second time is because I wanted people in my circles. I, you know, work in maternal and child health and Um, that's a part of the reason why I ran for office is that we didn't have enough people who had been working on the ground up there making decisions and passing legislation to help people. Mm -hmm. And so that's one reason I ran. And the other was so that people around me who didn't have a connection to their government and to legislators could see what it looked like to try to get into that system so that maybe they would see how unfair it is in some ways but also that those people who you're interested in running down ballot, you know, your House reps, your Senate reps, um, and even Congress people, but just noticing that not all of us have the support of that big establishment. You know, my largest donation so far for this campaign was $1,000 from one individual, and he said it's the most he's ever given to a campaign, which tells yeah. us that he's very inspired, right? Yeah. Um, so that's great. But large companies, healthcare systems, uh, oil and gas, they can contribute many, many thousands of dollars to candidates. And there's other ways to contribute even more, like setting up a PAC, for example. Now, I will say not all PACs are bad. And it's important for us to recognize that some really great people and some really great organizations are starting to play by the rules of the game, Mm -hmm. right? Don't hate the player, hate the game. And so there are some great PACs out there that are trying to combat this problem of dirty money, of um, corporate money being in our elections, and they're trying to help these grassroots candidates. Ultimately, though, you asked me what we can do when I'm in office, too, and that's to remove money from our political system in this way. 
Mm-hmm. I ultimately, this will take some time, but I ultimately would like to see us have publicly funded elections that are more restricted and restrained so that it's not two years of running for office, for example, or people aren't completely overwhelmed for the entire election year. I would like to see something where each candidate receives a certain bucket of money per se, where they can choose where to put it and what to fund and that there's not this unlimited amount of money. So my opponent has one and a half million dollars in his campaign funds. How is anyone supposed to take that on truly it's actually 1.66 million dollars last time i checked which was uh, earlier this morning (laughs) but uh yeah and i did find some of the numbers there he's uh got 100 almost 140 thousand dollars from crop production and basic processing 177 thousand plus dollars from health professionals pharma and hospitals and $58,000 from insurance and 28,000 almost $29,000 from oil and gas. So yeah, I mean, you know where everybody's coming from. You know, when you see their when you see where the money's coming from, you you can understand then why, for example, your opponent voted against putting a cap on the insulin costs of $35 a month or something. I mean, th- yeah, I think it's $35 a month per person. And exactly. uh, yeah, it's because that's that's who's funding his campaign. And if he doesn't take the money, somebody else will step up and take the money and, and push him out. So it's the, it's the system that's, um, you know, I, I think it's the individual, too, is, is corruptible to some degree, but it's also the system that corrupts them. But this is the thing. I mean, the Democrats have also been playing this game, too. I mean, you can look on Open Secrets and see what, what Democrats are receiving um, from some of these corporations. And I've often said that People on the uh, on the on the Congress floor, uh, they shouldn't wear uh, their regular jackets, you know, suit ja- suit and tie jackets. They should actually wear jackets that have patches on them, like you know, race car drivers do. That, you know, that, that would have advertise who them. who's sponsoring them. Yeah, I mean it, that's I like that's that. what it is. So um, like that. yeah, that's that's kind of built into these parties, though, isn't it? it both Democrats and Republicans, though, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Um, And I think that's an important part of my campaign and a lot of Democrats down ballot that are running for office these days with our kind of progressive, excited movement to revitalize and change our government back to being more for the people. It's really that those who have accumulated wealth are able to keep control now. Mm -hmm. And You know, I had a conversation recently with a voter that this reminds me of. They were very, very set on term limits being something we need to get done immediately. Mm -hmm. And after I chatted with them for a little while, they started to see that getting money out of politics is actually a first step that needs to happen before or simultaneously. But getting money out of politics is more important than term limits at this moment, because let me give an example of my own opponent. He is capable of receiving crazy amounts of money from, you know, these huge industries, big businesses and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, big ag is one that you mentioned, right? So even yeah. though he claims to be for the farmers, he's supporting CAFOs and big agriculture yeah. that is yeah. damaging family farms and, and harming us like Monsanto, right? Really putting farmers out of business. And if we just enact term limits, then we're going to make it that the people who have the most corporate backing are able to just keep taking the seats because at this time in our political system, it's the people with the most money who tend to win elections the most often. 
And so if we don't change the money, then big corporations, big business, big pharma, big ag, all those groups with so many billions and trillions, they will just buy the next candidate to put in that seat. Yeah. So it's not term limits that are going to help us first. It's minimizing the amount of money that these oligarchs and corporations can put into our system. Yeah, and when you talked about CAFOs before, that's the concentrated animal feeding operations. Those are the factory farms out there that are polluting our streams. I talk about this a lot. They pollute our streams. They mm-hmm. um, they put a foul stench in the air. They really are a health hazard. And But this is something that actually has to take place on the state level, I believe, because I believe it was SB 391 from back in 2019, uh, here in Missouri anyways, that made it illegal for local county health departments to regulate these CAFOs uh, more than what the state regulates them. In other words, the state is going to set these these limits. And it, they're ridiculous limits, too, like that these, these basically these cesspools that are created for the animal waste um, have to be like 300, I think it was like 300 feet away from any water well. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> that groundwater seeps in just a few days is going to seep over to that water well. Come on, this is ridiculous. But that's, that's, what right. the, that's what the state says. And so the counties, the county health departments are powerless to put any more restrictive uh, regulations in place. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of a state thing at this point. Or do you think that it could be a federal thing to, to regulate these or, or to allow the counties to regulate these uh, CAFOs? I definitely think both. I'm very in favor for more local control. And I think that that's a talking point that Republicans have generally um, spoken on, but that they aren't actually voting for. Mm -hmm. I think that they've made a lot of voters believe that they want local control when in reality, they've just dismantled our government and make it made it harder for it to work for us. I since what you just touched on, right, is that local counties, the public health departments, the local like the city councils, county commissioners, all that kind of stuff. They have less power now over what happens in their county and in their area. And now it goes to the state level. And I think that's wrong because locally the people know what needs to happen, what's best for their area. And not every community is going to shut down every project. If the company is a good business and they're going to have good sound practices and they speak to the community to find out what that community knows then most of the time that group is going to help this good company Mm -hmm. get started in the right place in the county. And right now, as I say this, I'm thinking of the silica mine that they're proposing to um, put in St. Genevieve County, which is in the 8th Congressional District. And, you know, I've spoken with a lot of people who have people in the mining industry. They, you know, aren't against mining they're just angry at the way that this proposal specifically was done and how many people didn't know about it until the last minute that Mm -hmm. the company didn't talk to all not all the neighbors right i'm not expecting that but the company didn't speak to the people in the community and most people would would have told them a better place for them to set up shop for this mine than where they're doing it Mm -hmm. and i think that really goes to show that we can't keep letting Uh, politicians and corporations be the ones that dictate what's happening to us locally. Um, Yeah. yeah. You bring up a good point there because I've run into this time and time again. I ran into it first when I was was living in California 
um, they were going to put up, uh, I don't know if you know what the Circuit City um, uh, chain of stores was at that point, but they were going to put up this big, ugly building. And the regulations at that time said they only had to notify people within 50 feet. Well, nobody lived within 50 feet of where they're going to put this thing, right? And so the whole community was just up in arms about this. This is going back to the 1990s. And more recently in my neighborhood here, I live in Jefferson County. Um, yeah, another uh, another neighborhood decided or another builder decided to build another neighborhood that would use our streets in our neighborhood that we had to maintain. Mm-hmm. And um, it was one of those things, again, where they didn't notify anybody because of the, the regulations that the politicians had in place at that point said, well, I don't know what the what the number of feet were, but it was just a minimal number of people had to be informed of it. So the next thing you know, you know, a sign goes up and like saying, we're going to, the future, the future of this, new, uh, or in the future, we're going to build this new neighborhood here. And it's already almost a done deal by that time. So I can, That's I can right. see why these people down near St. Genevieve there are having a really hard time with this because this has been going on for years. And, and, and you talk about local control too. You know, it, it, we talked about CAFOs, but this also takes place, as I understand the Kansas city police department is being run by the state. Um, schools, uh, the, 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 uh, the Missouri legislature, which is majority Republicans, uh, talk about uh, having parental control over schools, but then they come into these schools and say, well, you will not have mask mandates. Uh, you will not teach from these books, um, you know, and, and down the line they go. And it's like, well, where is the power now? Is it really with the parents or are they consolidating it back in the, in the state capital? Uh, That's Second exactly Amendment, right. Second Amendment Protection Act, same thing. The police hate this thing. This is something that Missouri passed that said we're basically going to ignore any sort of uh, federal overlaying laws regarding our Second Amendment rights. And so, you know, you have local police departments that are saying, wait a minute, this is crazy stuff. You know, you're taking power away from the people here. So, um, That's right. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. The, the Republicans used to be about local control, but now it's it's consolidating to uh, to a centralized control at this point. Um, That's right, and I think more people need to be inspired to remember that government exists as an organization of the people, and we need to be electing people that do represent us and that actually want to make government work for us. Mm-hmm. I think. I think we got too frustrated with the issues we saw with government, and then we started getting more connected to the messages of government isn't working. And instead of making it work better, we kind of went with the people that make it work worse. Yeah, <laughs> It doesn't help to have government dismantled because then you go through so many more steps when you're trying to get something done that needs to be done, right? So if a mining company is trying to build a mine on your land and there's a, um, a contested fight about whose land this is, well, we really don't want old wild west shooting to figure out whose this is right we want the government made up of people from that local community who come together talk together and figure out with resources what the actual answer or solution is instead of dismantling our government or making it harder for us to control and operate it it's really just supposed to be us so i see so many inspiring people running for office you know before we started chatting on this podcast, you and I talked about Jess Piper, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, Spencer Toter. And those are some people who really inspire me that want our government to work for us. Yeah. And we really need to be electing people now that want that. 
Yeah, I think it, a lot of that goes back to Ronald Reagan's uh, inaugural address. I believe it was 1981, when before his first, or right at his first session, or first uh, um, four years in, in the, as president. And he's, he made in his speech, he said, government isn't the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. And to me at that point, that's when the jump off point was when people started saying, well, the government is a problem. And yeah, I think you can trace it directly to the problems we're having today where people don't look at the government as being a, an entity to protect them and to serve them. It's really an entity to be defeated. And um, I think it was Henry Martin I talked to. He's running for um, uh, uh, U.S. representative position in the 6th District in Missouri here, yeah. And uh, I think it was him that gave me this quote. He said, I guarantee you if somebody goes into office saying government is the problem, that they are going to make the government a problem. <laughs> so uh, That's exactly right. What, what you believe is what you're going to work towards, right? And mm-hmm. You make me think of something I, I like to share with people because I'm a pretty positive person and I want to see things be better. And I know that we can make things better when we organize and connect together and and move towards doing that. I worked on a project when you mentioned I was a program director for maternal and child health programs for farm working families. Mm-hmm. I did this program that was called Positive Deviance Model. And I loved it. I was so drawn to it because the idea was not to just focus on what barriers people face and what barriers do we need to remove. It was a little bit more about who is successful in the behaviors that we want to see and why are they successful and how can we support more people being successful. And I love that because I think there's a little bit too much rhetoric and dialogue around what isn't working, what our barriers are, what's going wrong. And as much as we do need to share those things, if that's all we focus on, then that's where our attention and energy goes. If we focus on the things that are going right as well, and we focus on some of the people who are making it work and finding out why and how they're making it work under those conditions that they're in, then we can also put some of our dialogue, focus, attention, and funding towards the programs, communities, areas, the things that are working right Mm -hmm. and promote those as well. Because it's not just about taking down barriers. It's about making sure that the supports that work get promoted too. You know, and that almost sounds like classic um, um, conservative dialogue right there. You know, go with what works, right? Because we've learned through history what works and, and what doesn't work. And occasionally you do have to experiment, obviously, otherwise you never really move forward. And that's the progressive part of, de- of, of politics. But um, certainly, yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and a lot depends on the words you, that you use. I remember when we were raising my son, he was very young, and, and um, I'd be very careful about things like, uh, let's say he didn't close the door on his way out of the house. I'd say, close the door because the cat will get out or something like that. Well, what he yes. hears is the cat will get out, and so he leaves it open, right? But you want to say something like, close the door to keep the cat in the house. <laughs> you know? mm. And a lot yes. depends on the words you're using, but that actually does work, you know, and it, it establishes a pattern of success. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I'm raising young children, too, and I've worked with kids for much of my life. And one example would be when we yell, don't run. And they hear run. And they hear run, right? yeah. Because yeah, exactly. um, the don't, yeah, who cares about that? They hear run. <laughs> and so we would always say, walk, please, yes. walking feet, right? And so it's exactly that same idea of 
making sure that we're also promoting the language, the dialogue, the programs, the people, the services, and the behaviors that are positive, that yeah. are working. Yeah. yeah, that's a very good psychological principle there. It works on children as well as adults. I, I can testify to that myself. So. <laughs> Um, but we are running out of time here, so I have one more question for you. I'd, I'd love to ask you a lot more questions, but I realize we're kind of going over the time here, and I know you're pretty busy today. Um, where can people go to learn more about your campaign, about learn about you, about your campaign, and and um, and uh, in your efforts to represent the Missouri's eighth district? Yes, so I have a great website up, and we are working all the time to um, expand it and put more on the website, so that will continue to grow with my campaign. But you can find that at randymccallion.com. So I'll spell my name real quick for folks. R-A-N-D-I-M-C-C-A-L-L-I-A-N.com. But if you just look me up, Randy McCallion, Missouri, you'll also find um, my website. There's lots of information there. You can donate through there. There's an About Me page. I have my values page that I'm still building and working on. And on that page, people will notice that I begin my values page with the things that I've heard from people around the district that I've been talking to. Because a big part of this campaign for me is to listen because I'm not the expert in everything at all. My area is maternal and child health. And I want to hear from the people who have lived here much longer than me what it is that they've seen happen in our community, what has been good and what hasn't been good, and what do we need to be strong? And each community is going to be a little different. You know, I hear from the boot heel, for example, that talking about jobs really doesn't resonate with them anymore because they don't even have housing. Mm. And so the community, when they hear, you know, Democrats or Republicans talk about bringing jobs in, they kind of just roll their eyes at this point because they're like, well, where will anyone live? You mm. know, mm -hmm. we don't even have houses for our adult children when they grow up or our aging parents or anything like that. So how could anyone come and bring jobs to the area when there's no houses compared to, um, some other areas where healthcare is much more important or critical of an issue because the people in those areas have to drive over an hour or an hour and a half to receive even a pediatrician visit or you know regular healthcare services, not even to mention mental health services, which mm -hmm. are literally non-existent in huge parts of the 8th district. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening and I would love to hear from people in the 8th that want to share their experiences. If they take a look at my values page and they don't feel like the things that they're facing or struggling with or want to see from our government are on that page, I really want to hear from them then because it takes all of us and especially at a time when um, it really feels like we're greatly divided and we're not able to connect and talk anymore on values and issues. It's more important than ever that we make the effort to do that now. And so I encourage the people who want to help with my campaign we will have volunteer opportunities coming, but for now, connect with your neighbors, connect with family members, connect with coworkers, and start with our values. And if they want to use my campaign as a reason to connect, there's so many great ways that they can use what I'm doing or use me, use the campaign to say to someone, hey, have you heard so-and-so Randy running for office and they might say we have a woman running for office or a mom um, or someone who really seems to care about reviving rural Missouri 
And that's really what I want to do. I want to see rural Missouri thrive because it's my home and I'm raising my children here. I don't want us to continue to suffer from brain drain, from losing our young folks to the cities so that they can get, you know, college educations there. I want to make sure that we have opportunity here, that we bring opportunity for education, you know, that might look like um, electrical education, you know, union jobs and welding and building construction, all those kind of, you know, plumbing. We really need more of that focus on um, hands-on jobs in these areas, as well as having access to other jobs, which brings me to broadband internet, because mm-hmm. we do not have good access to internet here in rural Missouri. And my own family had this experience moving out here to a, a dirt road rural area where we used hotspots until we just recently got access to Starlink. And neither of those feel accessible for most people here because they were quite expensive to pay for, both Mm -hmm. of those. And it's just not okay that we're keeping rural Missouri and rural America separate from the information that people in cities have so much access to at a much lower cost than we do in rural Missouri. So I want to see opportunity I want to see rural development because I'm raising my children here too. And I want to make sure that we can thrive. Very well put. I, I like that. And it, as you're talking there, I was just remembering that the 8th District of Missouri is actually, um, the, the, I guess for the lack of a better term, the poorest of the 8 districts in Missouri. And it's in the lowest uh, 10% of the, of the nation. And it's, it's just hasn't gotten any better for the last 10 years, you know, it's it's gotten worse, as we talked about earlier with rural hospitals closing and so on. And so I really like what you're saying there about listening to the people, listening to the problem, because I would have thought myself that, yeah, jobs is the problem, but but uh, housing is more even, even more fundamental than that. Um, That's right. Perfect. That's like right. That. And I will say, you know, you, you struggled with not wanting to call it the poorest district. What I see is that we've had the most resources taken from us. Mm. Mm. That's a good we point. pay just as many taxes. We have just as many people in this district as the other congressional districts, right? Because they're, we have 30 counties here, which is you know pretty darn big. But it has the same number of people, roughly, as the other congressional districts. It really appears to me and sounds to me from the people I talk to like the most opportunity, the most resources have been taken from us. Wow. That is that's a profound way of looking at it. I never would have thought about that, but that's that's true. That's very true. Paying taxes and not getting, you know, the return from from uh, what you paid for. I mean, there, that's another exactly. conservative principle, right? I mean, in a sense, you're you're paying for something. You need to get a return for it. Exactly. Um, our money should be here in our district, and too many people see and feel that we pay our taxes, and that money cities and other places. Yeah. Hang on a second. I think you just got cut off there at the very last end. I heard like oh. a phone thing going there. Yes. Am I back? Yeah. Yeah. You're back. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Sorry. My dad was calling me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. But you, you, you the, I think the point you were making was, was well taken though, that, um, you know, the, you, you, the resources, um, have been taken from your district and really you need to see a return on that. I think it's only That's fair. That's right. Yeah. 
So once again, that's randymccallion.com, R-E-N-D-I-M-C-C-A-L-L-I-A-N.com. I hope I spelled that right. Yes. Okay. We did. And uh, I'll make one more action step for folks. My goal with this campaign is that we reach a crazy number of unique first-time donors. And that was important to me in my last campaign to make sure that we showed we were a campaign for the people and not for big money and not for corporations and not for any of that. And uh, so I'm my goal for this campaign is over 500 unique donors and we're almost to 100. My smallest donation is $1 and my largest is 1000 but our average is about $30. And so if people can contribute $5 or maybe $8 for the eighth, that's really helpful because ultimately it shows that we have support from the people and that's more important to me. Okay, good. And I just incidentally became a uh, potentially one of your constituents here. They just redistrict everything. I was taken out of Woo-hoo. Ann Wagner's district and put into uh, your district. So um, I'm so happy to have you in our district. <laughs> so now I can contribute myself. <laughs> okay, we've been talking with Randy McCallion, who's running for a U.S. House of Representatives seat representing the 8th District in Missouri. Randy, thank you for joining us on the program at Democracy on the Move today, and good luck in your campaign. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to help sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music Murky Waters performed by El Rey Music used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.